This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I also think I have a river problem. I really, really, really love rivers. Uh, I don't even fish anymore. I just like to go sit by them, and I think that still counts. (laughs) I suppose when I get a chance to do something that could maybe help protect them, it feels very right, and it's you know something that I, I like to say yes to. If I don't have time to go get exercise, you know, I can go spend time by the river and it somehow it fixes some things that might be a little broken. I take my daughter Juniper on the bike down to the Arkansas and we to the bridge and we'll watch the swallows uh, just uh, circle around above us. And one of the words she knows is wow. And she's just like, wow, wow. <laughs> and it just makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> This episode comes to you from one of the finest creators of river films. Think of Damnation and Red Gold and numerous other films. Ben Knight of Felt Soul Media is our guest today. Ben's films use the power of incredible imagery, insightful interviews, and poignant topics to bring the viewer into the story in a way that seems to transcend the screen. I recall the first time I saw Red Gold. It was on a big screen when Mountain Film was on tour. I was shocked, shocked by the beauty that was captured by the camera, shocked by the story that had tried to stay quiet, shocked that someone could make a film that was so good the entire way through and that was exploring a topic that reached back millions of years prior, held prominence with today's humans and intended to support the coming million years. And then there is Damnation, a film that motivates me to do this river work every time I watch it. We will come back to Ben and his interview shortly. This episode is also moving to a new style. Today I hand over the hosting of the River Radius to our first contributing host, Greg Cairns. Greg is a river runner, both for work and pleasure. And Greg is a filmmaker and a podcast host. Earlier this year, Greg reached out to the River Radius about becoming a contributing host. I was stunned as this was such an empowering request for the podcast and then excited as I considered the depth of bringing in new river wisdom to the hosting microphone. I listened to Greg's podcast episodes, and he was building great content, and even hosted an episode about Project Raft from the 1980s that I had considered covering. We talked and messed around with some ideas, and we decided to go for it, to have Greg become a contributing host. He had a few ideas for his first episode, and then he called back and suggested that he would contact today's guest, Ben Knight. I was totally into it. And then word comes down that Ben said yes to the interview. A few weeks later, Greg interviewed Ben, and he called me after. He was pumped. I was pumped. And I was, and am so thrilled for this really genuine conversation between two river filmmakers to be on the river radius. And yet, before we get into that interview, I want you to meet Greg. Greg, welcome to the river radius. Can you you tell us who you are? Hey, Sam. I'm Greg. I am a Idaho river guide and a filmmaker and try and be a good human, among other things. And I make podcast episodes. And, and so you also, you create films. Tell me about that side of your work, uh, specifically like the, well, I guess all of it. You, know, you, you said you do commercial work, but you also do outdoor river focused filming as well. Tell me about that work. Yeah. So I'll fast forward through the the first part was, which me, it's me being, you know, 14 with a camera filming my friends mountain biking. <laughs> and then got to college, 
just kept filming, just friends playing music, bars, things like that. And eventually after college, uh, decided to try and make it work to do film work, just, just pretty much exclusively and struggled with it for a while, but finally made it work. And because I'm a river guide, I am surrounded by river stories. So naturally I, I just, the films I think of to work on are often river related and often they're conservation or environmental focused, but I believe that if I can work on those sorts of stories then I, I should, and I, I enjoy it, but there's a huge overlap between river stories and, and conservation environmental work. So that's a lot of it as well. This is your first podcast for the River Radius. I'm curious, uh, why did you decide to reach out and and offer contributing host services to the River Radius? Yeah, um, I had been working on my own podcast called Eddie Lines for well since 2020, basically right when COVID started. I was out of film work. Everyone, basically, no one was hiring for marketing, which is essentially what most film work is. It's it's marketing for better or worse. And I was stuck at home and had kind of wanted to work on a podcast and thought it'd be a good time. And so I started to work on river stories and I had just rough ideas. I made several episodes. I think I had six out as of when we met and I'm always looking to work with other people. And in the podcast world, it's much easier to collaborate. And I don't know, at one point I had heard your podcast a couple of years ago and didn't really think of, you know, trying to work together at the time. And then I think I was at Durango Film Festival showing Dear Granny last year and leaving there on the drive back to Montana. I had heard another episode of The River Radius. And for whatever reason, it just, it just clicked and I kind of got inspired and thought, man, we're, our, what we're doing is, is so close to similar styles and I just want to do more of it. And I don't really care about being the Sam, the CEO of the river radius or whatever podcast it is. I just like to work on stories and write them and make good stories and share it with people. And so I, yeah, I just thought, you know, maybe this Eddie lines thing has run its course. Yeah. I just thought maybe I should reach out to Sam and see, maybe we could work together on some things. So here we are. The River Radius is very excited to welcome Downriver Equipment Company to the advertising crew on our podcast. Downriver Equipment is a river gear shop, the kind that you can park out front and go inside and hang out with other river people. River people who work at Downriver and river people who are coming in for the good gear. Downriver Equipment is based in Denver, Colorado, and if you can't get to their shop in person, you can get online and find that same sweet gear ready to be shipped to you at www.downriverequip.com. Downriver builds all of their frames in their manufacturing shop in Denver. The folks building those frames are river runners. They understand the torsion and pressure put on frames and boats coming from the load of your gear and from the hydrology of the river. They make these frames to endure the river pounding on the boat day after day, river after river. All the components for their frames are manufactured in the United States with final cutting and welding, creation and assembly happening at their shop. And maybe you aren't looking for a frame today. Maybe just some straps, a PFD, or a groover, or maps and great river information. Downriver has the river gear and the river information you might be looking for. In person in Denver, Colorado, or online at www.downriverequip.com. That is spelled downriverequip.com. There's also a link in today's episode notes for their website. 
and you can find them on Instagram and Facebook. Tell them the River Radius sent you. Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck, and in the middle of this episode we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out, it's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed, or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes, even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest on my first episode of The River Radius, Ben Knight. Ben's a quiet, humble guy, so I thought I'd rewrite his bio to make it sound less impressive. Ben and his filmmaker partner, Travis Rummel, became unemployed in 2005 in order to make films. According to their website, Ben hasn't won any Nat Geo Awards in the past seven years. Also, in 2015, he gave a high school commencement speech. Ben likes cats and chickens but hates canned peas and just started an anti-anxiety medication because of filmmaking. He won't name drop unless it's to say that someone is wonderful or talented. Really, though, that's all true. Plus, he and Travis have won 53 festival awards in 12 years and two Oscar qualifications. Ben, welcome to the River Radius. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored, man. So I know you said, I said you're a quiet, humble guy, and I think the response to just me reading your bio kind of <laughs> confirms that. Do you feel like you want to add anything for the folks listening right now about who you are, just going into it? Um. I'm nobody. I just, you know, I just, I, this just happens to me. My job, I tell stories. Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make me any cooler than anyone else. Uh, I was, I mean, I'm like no more valuable than a plumber, but, uh, it, it's funny. Like, I, I think, um, I think being a filmmaker is somehow romanticized by a lot of folks. And, you know, I get, I get that totally. I mean, that's how I felt when I was a kid and wanted to do these things, but but really, when, you know, when you get down to the nitty gritty, it's it's really, really, really hard, and uh, you have to take it really seriously and give every little ounce of your soul and to ev- not not just to the film, but like every single person involved in the making of it. And yeah, it's it's a it's a hell of a lot. Um, but uh, you know, I'm I'm happy that I get to do this and. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it doesn't make me any cooler than anyone else. And 
that's all. I, I'm, are we done? <laughs> we can be. Um, well, I, no, I, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate that perspective. It's good to hear from people that are behind some kind of curtain of film or media or art or, you know, whatever it is that ego is not really, shouldn't be part of it and isn't part of it. It's just kind of this thing that people, you know, it gets at, it gets lumped on to a human based on the stuff that they do and all the stuff around that stuff. It's funny you mentioned that. It reminds me so much of uh, my first chance ever being behind that curtain, uh, which was uh, just being part of like a tech theater group in high school where, you know, I just built sets and figured out how to run the sound and lights. And uh, I love just being like this secret little force that was super integral to the to the production but like no one paid any attention to it and then I'll never forget the first play I had no idea that the like the actors were gonna when they were taking their bows I had no idea they were gonna turn and have the audience clap for us too you know behind (laughs) the scenes I know that was like so special all right so I gotta ask I looked it up I emailed you eight years ago and we only met once but I just want to ask how are you Oh man. Yeah, I've been better. I've been better. It's, um, it's been a interesting transition becoming a father. I mean, uh, I wouldn't change it for anything, but it's definitely like knocked me for a loop career wise. Like all of a sudden there's this incredible little thing that I, I care more about than work, uh, much more, uh, to the point of it being a little bit hard to focus on work, but yeah, I don't know. It's been a little bit tricky. Like I've lost a bit of my identity and uh you know my ability to be spontaneous and i think my ability to be spontaneous also sort of helped me work because if there's any other artist listening to this like <laughs> typically like your best work comes when you feel like working so if you want to work in the middle of the night do it you know if if that's when you're feeling it do it or like if you want to take your morning to do something else and work later do it it's like a But yeah, I just, I lost the ability to do those things now that I'm a father and, you know, uh, yeah, it's just been, it's just been tricky and I, am sure everyone can relate to that. But, uh, do you think when looking back, you know, so many years from now, is there, is there Ben the filmmaker before Ben the father? And then there's like this different filmmaker Ben afterwards. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I'm a different person. I just think I think I might have lost a little bit of my ambition, if that makes any sense. It's like my my ambition took a step down in priority. There was probably a day when I just like really, really wanted to get a film into Sundance or like really wanted to make sure the film I made got onto Netflix. And now I'm just like, oh, Jesus, I got to pay the mortgage and I need to not be an asshole zombie around my child. You know, it's like that's what matters now (laughs) so So i want to ask you do a lot of different kinds of things a lot of it's outdoor themed there is some reoccurring elements of the stories that are river related or water related and i'm curious is that just coincidence because of where you started with red gold and and then leading into damnation or is there some thing about water that is easy to say yes to or or draws you to it it's funny. It's a little bit of both. I, um, 
a lot of it is coincidence. Uh, well, a lot of it is based on the fact that fly fishing was centered around rivers. I also think I have a river problem. I really, really, really love rivers. Uh, I don't even fish anymore. I just like to go sit by them. Uh, and I think that still counts. <laughs> um, I am constantly looking for land by water that is affordable. And, uh, unfortunately that doesn't exist really, but, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I, I have major river issues and, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's the sound or or what I mean I can barely even swim so it's not that I want to jump in them like you do um yeah um I wish I could expand on it more I'm just really drawn drawn to them and uh yeah and yeah I, I suppose when I get a chance to do something that could maybe help protect them it feels very right and it's you know something that I I like to say yes to there's a lot of people I'm guessing that listen that are listening that also have a river problem so you're not alone <laughs> I, I have that same problem as well. Plus, so you live, you don't have to say what river, but you live along one of the most grand rivers in the country. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. And just to, like, yeah. to think about where that water starts and where it ends and be in the middle of it, I think is there's something magical to that and also comforting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I would say I can hear the Arkansas River from my yard, which is nice, but it's a, it's um, probably a quarter mile away. But uh, this time of year in the spring, I can hear it. And uh, not too long ago, I bought a tiny piece of land for a, a, like a hilariously small amount of money on the Rio Grande River and, uh, in southern Colorado near the New Mexico border. And uh, my family and I go down there a lot. I do think it's part of my healing. Like if, if I don't have time to go get exercise, you know, I can go spend time by the river and it somehow it fixes some things that might be a little broken. <laughs> And uh, I take my daughter Juniper on the bike down to the Arkansas and we to the bridge and we'll watch the swallows uh, just uh, circle around above us. And I don't know, she just one of the words she knows is wow. And she's just like, wow, wow. <laughs> and it just makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Could you just quickly tell us basically the synopsis of Red Gold? Yeah, Red Gold. Um, the synopsis uh, of Red Gold is that there was a giant, giant proposed gold, copper, and molybdenum mine at the headwaters of the Bristol Bay watershed in Bristol Bay, Alaska. Um, it's been proposed for a long, long time. A lot of folks know about it now, thank God. But, uh, but when we started that project, very few people knew about it besides Alaskans, and even not enough Alaskans knew about it at the time. And uh, our task was to come up with a film that would help educate the lower 48 on the subject so that uh, people would get fired up about this just absolute disaster waiting to happen. And yeah, unfortunately, it's been it's been an issue since 2000, 2006. <laughs> And uh, we're, you know, we're hoping it's almost dead now. Um, but I, every time I get excited, it seems to like come back to life a little bit. Um, Trump didn't help with that. How does that feel when when you hear in the news about the double mine again? You know, when you think it should be over by now? Yeah, I guess at this point, I've kind of like tempered my feelings towards that. I try not to get my hopes up too much, but right now it's feeling really positive, and I feel 
as strong as I ever have that um, that we're going to stop this thing. Yeah, there's been some really low lows over, along the way. You know, um, Travis and I worked really, really hard on that film, and we really fell in love with that place and the people who, who subsistence fish uh, and the people who guide up there. And uh, I don't think there's been a film we've made that tugs at our heart like that one does to this day. I mean, I, I think it's probably the most important thing we've ever done is to bring some attention to that issue. And, and uh, like, it, it's, almost, it's honestly kind of sad that the Red Gold, the film, is still somewhat relevant. Um, but, you know, I'm glad we were able to sell it to PBS back in the day. Um, and they were able to make their own version of the film on uh, Frontline. Um, I think it was called Alaska Gold. I think it really helped get the word out. And and I'm just so, so grateful to um, to Tim Bristol, who used to run uh, Trout Unlimited Alaska. I mean, that dude is just an absolute legend. Like, he had the foresight to to know that a film need to, needed to be made. This was before crowdfunding, so he jumped on the... Uh, the Trout Unlimited email list sent out a notice that we need money to make this film. And it got like almost entirely funded by people just sending checks to Trout Unlimited. I mean, that, that doesn't happen anymore. And it was so beautiful. And uh, we, it, it was like we, f- we could feel that we had help. We could feel that people were behind us. And, and uh, it was a lot of pressure, but also like, one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. Did you know going into it that it would be such an important film to you and also to Bristol Bay, or was that something that you that you picked up on at some point during the process? No, I, I don't. I don't think I really felt that until the premiere, when we first showed it in Telluride at uh, the Mountain Film Festival. Uh, it was at their big venue, the Palm Theater. Yeah, I mean, I have goosebumps right now thinking about it. The the standing ovation was, like, rowdy. I mean, that place lit up like I've never seen before. They were on their feet, and Travis and I didn't even know what to do with ourselves. I, I mean, we had to go up and say something. And, I mean, these people have never heard of Bristol Bay. Half of them don't even, like, understand the life cycle of salmon, probably. And they were just fired up to to do something about it and to get involved in, or to at least cheer it along, you know? And it, I don't know, it was, that was like one of the, the most important moments of my career, that, that, that premiere of Red Gold. That, uh, the film has a pretty intense contrast, um, between opposing sides of, you know, the perspective of whether that dam should happen or not. And a lot of the film is, there's some people on both sides that are really, I mean, not all of them, but some of them you can sympathize with, not necessarily like agreeing with the validity of what they're saying the outcome would be, but that they would believe what they believe. I want to play this clip here. And then I want to ask you what it was like to work with people with, with, you know, such good intentions, not all of them, of course, but some of the people with good intentions that had such different beliefs. And how do you, when you're editing that, make make those choices about who to put light on in, in the right way. I just don't see anything coming in here that's going to really be a base like this. You got a place you can go to work. It isn't a contractor that's running out of money or not paying you or you're waiting to be paid. Or This is a neat thing for these kids. 
I hope they realize that they probably will never make any money off the fishing industry. You know, this, this mine coming in will, will supply a living for a handful of people for a certain amount of time. However, you know, this land has provided a living for thousands of people for thousands of years, and I just don't see how it can compare and why we should even risk that. Listening to that clip, what what's it like to make a film where there's hardworking people on both sides of a, a of a topic like Pebble Mine that have such different beliefs? And how do you listen to them and also edit how they're speaking? And how do you choose how to give them light? Yeah, that that was a really a really incredible challenge for us uh, on Red Gold. I mean, if you make an environmental film, you know it's probably going to kind of suck if you don't get both sides of the issue. So we're out there pretty much begging for anyone, begging for any native Alaskan who lives in those villages where the mine would be to say a single positive thing about what the mine would bring. And uh, the only people we could find who would speak for the mine were being paid to speak for the mine. They had brand new trucks, you know, they were they were literally bankrolled to say something positive about the mine, about Pebble Mine. And um, there was no no spark in their eye. Like, there was no genuine notion to any word that came out of their mouth. Um, and you knew it during the interview. And it was just it, it, one of the most depressing things I've experienced making films. And, um, and, oh. uh, and... But, uh, you know, one scene that I think really sticks with people from that film is the, the spokesperson for the mine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who let him talk to us. Like nowadays that would never happen. I, I think they just didn't take us seriously. Like he should never have been on camera because I think he just thought we were like two high school kids doing like a, a little school film or something like he I don't think he realized the reach this was going to have and he just like spouted off the most condescending things to us and uh yeah it it ended up making the film stronger because he was he was I don't know because he was like honestly a little bit nasty when you finished red gold and like that was the first big project you worked on right yeah, it was our first feature film. Yeah. We may need to take a tiny break. Um, yeah, um, kiddo just got home. Let me say hi to her, and then maybe my wife can help. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from, that is the LEAF and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you, you can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch, you can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system 
You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022, and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick-looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. Earlier, we talked about Downriver Equipment Company out of Denver, Colorado, a custom river shop providing hand-built frames. In addition to those custom frames, Downriver manufactures custom gear like straps, drop bags, rig bags, and pumps in-house, and every product with the Downriver label is built in the state of Colorado in the United States. And Downriver brings the other great river companies and brands to their shop for you to purchase and tailor for your river setup in the way you want. They offer numerous brands of cat boats and rafts, from the full-size rigs to the small and nimble paddle boats and shredders that you can weave down the steep drops, paddles and oars from the best builders, dry bags and full cooking and kitchen setups. And maybe you are new to the river world, or you have been on the water for a while and want to learn some skills that are valuable to your river life. Downriver hosts workshops on several topics to include cold weather boating, trip planning, and even river running clinics. And summaries of those clinics are posted on their website. Get in touch with Downriver in person in Denver, Colorado, or online at www.downriverequip.com. That is spelled Downriver E Q U I P.com. There's also a link in today's episode notes for their website, and you can find them on Instagram and Facebook. Tell them the River Radius sent you. When you finished Red Gold, and like that was the first big project you worked on, right? Yeah, it was our first feature film. Yep. When you finished that, where did that lead to? I think the I think the film we did after that was uh, Eastern Rises, which was uh, our first ridiculous trip to Russia uh, to go off to go fishing um, to Kamchatka and uh, but I, I think it mainly led to that because we met this guy Ryan Peterson in Alaska who's just a full-on legend and he he was just like you guys gotta come to Kamchatka it's ridiculous and uh, and we had already made a film with Frank Smethurst called Running Down the Man and uh, we thought it might be pretty entertaining to put these two guys together and uh, Frank had just found out that he was having his first child, so he was all screwed up during the trip. He was just a mess. And uh, I think he was just overthinking it all, which I can relate to now. Um, but, yeah, I, I, that that was our first trip to Kamchatka, and the trip was just an absolute mess, just, an, just a complete junk show. Oh, my God. And... I came home with the footage and honestly thought we had nothing. I was like, I'm sorry, guys, there's really no story here. It's just, it's really just almost embarrassing. And then, I don't know, I I waited a few months and just kind of sat on it. And that was the first time I decided to try narrating something, like writing it and narrating it. And I just, uh, I, I pretty much just tried to be, honest and have fun with it and uh and I don't know like uh, I think it 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 ended up being like definitely like our best our most successful fly fishing film and 
and not, you know, I can't, I can't tell you why, but like, I, I do think it's like, it's just lighthearted, you know, we're not, that might've been like the beginning of me realizing that, that we can't take ourselves too seriously. We got to stay humble and just try to make good stories. You know, it's like, yeah, it was just like very self-deprecating and honest and, uh, and just like it, so many things went wrong. I decided to just put them all in and talk about them. If that makes any sense. And like, it yeah, does. I and, mean, what was the other option <laughs> not to just do nothing with it? Like, you, yeah, exactly. Like I wasn't going to be able to make some polished, we went across the world and caught all the biggest fish bullshit. You know, it was yeah. like <laughs> we went over there and Frank was a complete mess because he's about to be a dad and I'm a complete mess because the mosquitoes were dry. Were honestly like I was losing my, my ability to think straight from the mosquitoes. And, um, and it, it was also the beginning of me hating filming fishing, uh, because I mean, you're sitting there in the grass being dead, still trying to follow a fly through a riffle, over and over and over again while being annihilated by bugs. It, you're not getting to fish. Uh, you're just sweating there, wearing too many clothes. And it's just like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. You know, like, I don't know. That, I mean, God love fishing, but it sort of made me hate it at the time. I want to move on a little bit to Damnation. I feel like when we spoke the first time when I met you that you said you, at some point you said you weren't initially interested in the project uh, because it sounded too dry. You know, it's, it wasn't about people. And I want to ask how that project came to you. And then did you say yes to it when you first heard about it? Patagonia had given us a few bucks to make Eastern Rises. So we had that connection at that point. And I think at some point, you know, Yvonne Chenard saw Eastern Rises and maybe he saw red gold. I don't know, but we were lucky enough to get the call when he and his, uh, his son-in-law had the idea to make damnation. And, uh, I mean, of course, when you get a call from Yvonne Chouinard, like you take it seriously, but when someone says like, Hey, we want to make a feature length film about inanimate concrete walls and the harm they cause you, your first thought is just like, Oh God, like how, how, how do you do that? How can, I mean, my whole job is to make someone care about an issue, you know, like how, how do I make this, uh, remotely relatable for, for anyone? Um, and my first question was, are any of them going to blow up? Cause, and, and they were like, actually there's one slated to blow up. And, uh, and then I was like, Ooh, okay, maybe I could be in. Uh, cause at least that sounds exciting or visually stimulating. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it just, it became this really long drawn out, almost three year process of trying to find a way to humanize this subject. So Travis and I 
borrowed a van and just drove and drove and drove and looked for stories that could somehow make dam removal interesting and like uh, compelling and and but on but more on a personal level like find people who are actually really passionate about these things and not necessarily dams but like uh the the environments that they're they're fucking up um and every time we found someone or thought of someone it was like it was like high fives and like it was so exciting you know i mean to find like the the activist from the 80s who used to paint cracks on dams and somehow get his ass on the phone and i mean he's like growing weed in the hills northern california and he's like sure i'll talk to you guys it's just like oh my god every little thing like that felt like we might have a film and then you know katie lee is still alive at that point who spent her whole life advocating for the removal of Glen Canyon Dam. And I mean, she's the, this fiery woman who in the fifties posed nude in Glen Canyon before, before it was a reservoir and uh, left her life in Hollywood as an actress to, you know, to make songs and fight for this place. And yeah. So like every time we found something that could actually, uh, that actually made it feel like we could personalize and humanize this film. It was like, all right, damn, we might actually have something. And, uh, you know, it just became this adventure. And then towards the end, realizing like, shit, we can't, we can't stop filming. We we have to, we have to wait and see if the fish come back. Mm. Like, well, we can't make this film and not show the fish coming back after a dam has been removed. So it, it became a pretty long process, uh, uh, but, you know, a worthy one. I want to ask about the scene uh, with Katie. Um, that was a really powerful scene. And it, I, when I'm looking back at it, it, I was surprised how much of the film was dedicated to Katie's story. At the time when you're watching it, it doesn't feel that long because it's so engaging that, I, you know, you kind of just want it to keep going and going and going. I'm going to play a clip real quick where Katie's talking about the magic of Glen Canyon. I would actually hear speaking in the wind sometimes. You go around the corner, well, you, everybody hears a whistle here and there, but nah. I heard more than whistles. And I just said, there's something queer about this place. Maybe it's scary. At first it was. And then I thought, no, I, I think there's just something here that's supposed to be part of me. 125 side canyons, every one of them different. Every one of them with a personality of its own. We would go around a corner and spread out before us would be this incredible sight that A, nobody had ever seen before. B, nobody had touched it. C, it was utterly and incredibly beautiful. Everything was in the right positions. All the colors were perfect. All the senses came just flashing out. I mean, I could hear better. I could feel better. I could speak better. I, I, everything just was amplified. What was it like to walk naked through Glen Canyon and just, <laughs> just be there? Well, I'm sorry, but I can hardly explain that. It was just absolutely the most natural thing in the world. Have you 
Have you visited Glen Canyon since your interview with Katie? One of the things that Travis and I were really dreading doing was filming the bit of B-roll that needed to go with Katie Lee's segment. We knew we had to do it. We needed to go back and film the things that she talks about that are now now inundated. At least now they're completely flooded with silt. It was very unenjoyable. It was very somber and like it just felt sort of gross. Like uh, and to drive around folks that were just uh, drunk on houseboats, having the times of their lives. Probably, I mean, to their credit, having very little context about the place. I mean, I would dare to say that a lot of them had no idea what was there before and still don't. Um, I find it to be a hard place to enjoy when you know as much as I do about it and the history of it and especially, you know, the the artifacts um, of human history that have been buried there as well. Yeah, it's definitely kind of a mixed feeling thing. I mean... Of course, I want it. I want Glen Canyon to go back to the way it was, but that's going to take a really long time for all that sediment to come out of there, and we got to remove the dam still. So it's a long ways off. But but the mixed feeling part is that seeing that reservoir come down also means that the West is in trouble. You know, it, it, you can't just celebrate that the canyons are showing up again. Uh, you know, it's, it's terrifying. Like this, this is bad news, you know, uh, in general, uh, for climate change and, uh, and just the water we need in the West to grow our food and to sustain these ridiculous cities and all our golf courses and lawns. On one hand, it's, uh, it's exciting to think that maybe the reservoir could become useless to the Bureau of Reclamation. And that could mean removing the dam. You know, that that part seems encouraging. And, uh, you know, 50 years of Colorado River floods, maybe it could kind of restore and heal itself, washing all that crap out of there. You know, that would be the hope. But, you know, Katie didn't get to see it in her lifetime, so, like, it's it's hard to celebrate. You stayed friends with Katie later on, right? Yeah, we stayed in touch, and she came to quite a few screenings, which was incredible. Yeah, I feel really lucky to have spent the little bit of time I did with her. And yeah, I can I can still like feel her hand on my leg. I don't know what it was about the Q&A. She would always reach over and put her hand on my leg. <laughs> it's just like the 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 most tender thing from such a like kind of a hard ass woman. She had some pretty funny moments on stage uh, with us. I, you know, at one point, she threatened to moon the audience. <laughs> she actually bent over and was about to pull her pants down and I don't know what stopped her, but she's, uh, you know, they, they just don't make them like that anymore. And, uh... As a, you know, you were a journalist at Telluride and then later a filmmaker. I want to ask, you know, these journeys, these stories that you go on, that, that you follow and learn, does it have an impact on you? And then, you know, you, on your website you mentioned, I said in the intro, your anti-anxiety meds. Um, do you ever wish that you were, that you could forget the stories you cover or is it, is it too important to you to, to wish that? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't say I, I would like to erase anything. Um, no, it's all, I've learned so much from every story I've had the privilege of telling. I've met 
God, I've met so many amazing people. It's one, like, really ridiculously cool part of my job is that you get put in these situations that no one else gets to be in. And, like, I'll show up somewhere and someone will, like, already trust me with their story. It's crazy. I'm sure you can relate. Like, it's a... Yeah. Jess Kimura, for instance, uh, in Learning to Drown, they're giving you everything they have in the interview. They're just laying their fucking raw-ass soul out on the table for you to make something into and to like uh to convey their story to an audience in a way that will capture who they are as a person truly not like scratching the surface not like not sugarcoating it you know you're you're laying it all out there and uh like someone i've never met before yeah it's but it's also like this enormous amount of pressure and it's this massive responsibility to get it right. And I think that's what's, what's kind of torn me to shreds over the years. And it's not, it's not like that person is putting the pressure on you. It's me, you know, I'm doing it because I want to get it right. Maybe it's just my work ethic. I, I don't know, but it makes it hard. And like often I wish I was just helping someone find the right goddamn screws at the hardware store. Like, it, it, like, I don't even know what it's like to clock out at five and have a beer and not think about work. You have to nail it or no one's going to watch it and no one's going to get anything from it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Just trying super hard. We're all trying hard. Yeah, and yeah, it's no different than anyone else. I'm just, I'm just trying really hard. <laughs> so for any listeners that aren't familiar with In Currents, that was a film that you worked on with uh, some other creative folks in Yeti, and that was a film that was shot in the Grand Canyon. Can you just tell me about that trip and, and what it was like to be down there? And was that your first time down there in the Grand? Yeah, that was my first time in the Grand Canyon, which was pretty rad after after doing Damnation because I had I'd read so much about uh, the possibility of damming Grand Canyon that I you know really felt like I needed to see the bottom of it. But yeah, that was uh, that was one of those just like totally absurd commercial ventures kind of where we got dropped off by a helicopter somewhere down further in the canyon and jumped on a dory trip just so we could film uh, these amazing folks from Oars, uh, these amazing guides. And uh, yeah, so the, you know, the plan was kind of the, to focus on two guides, one being like the the older seasoned guide, uh, John Shockley from Silverton and, uh, and the newer up and coming guide, uh, Amber Shannon, uh, who was up and coming, like hoping she was, you know, she's, she's been rowing the grand for 10 years, but she still hasn't gotten, you know, the go ahead to be a Dory captain because she's just, she's been rowing like uh, the gear boats for years and years to earn her chops. And, and uh, so this was kind of special to get to see her um, get to take a dory um, through a few rapids for the first time, like under the instruction of, uh, of John. And uh, yeah, man, you could just, you could just feel how much it meant to her. Um, not just, 
not just the experience of rowing a dory, uh, but you could tell she really felt the history of the craft and all the people who have touched it along the way and all the stories it's gathered over the years through the canyon. And, and I mean, it meant a lot, a great deal to her. And, uh, and I, you know, I was hoping we were able to capture that. Um, but, uh, it was, it was definitely special to witness it and, uh, to see her face, uh, was incredible, uh, making it through a couple tricky things without, uh, um, scraping any of that wood on, on rock. So I want to move on. We're almost out of time. Um, your newest film, A Thousand Casts. What can you tell me about it? A Thousand Casts has been a long time in the making. Oh my God. I think we started it in, uh, 2017, but yeah, Oliver White, he's from North Carolina as well, from the same town as I am, uh, Chapel Hill. And um, he's become this really well-renowned fly fisherman in the industry. And uh, not only for, not only because he's a, an incredible fisherman, obviously, but he's done some, some amazing uh, nonprofit work with his, uh, his work with IndieFly. The premise of the story was to take him all the freaking way to Bhutan, to catch this giant fish that no one knew if we could catch it on a fly rod. Yeah, it was a hell of an adventure. And and then, you know, we get back, cut the film together. It takes about a year and a half or so to cut it together. And then, and then the king of Bhutan won't approve the film. What? Why not? Uh, it... it he was a little upset about some of the things we had in it. <laughs> and, uh, Bhutan's a little bit uh, careful about the media that comes out of their country. Uh, they're really careful about it. And um, and on our way to go fish these rivers, there are giant, like, Hoover Dam-sized dam projects all the way to the fishing spots. You know, we're driving by them day after day, and it's just like thousands of Indian laborers there building these giant dams for Bhutan so Bhutan can sell the electricity to India to, I guess to help pay for their gross national happiness or whatever they call it uh, so anyways uh, it, it, we might have talked a little too much trash about the dam building towards the end of the film and one character in the film was uh, the prince of Bhutan's bodyguard was our guide for the trip uh he didn't speak a, a word of english but he knew how to catch these fish we were after but only with like giant lures on spinning rods uh but anyways like we we obviously i filmed him because it's freaking interesting and then you know the king says oh no way you can't put the bodyguard in there like he's like he's protected you know it's it's like the equivalent of like the the cia you know you can't show him it was like this legal battle and we released the film at mountain film in i guess think it was 2018 we won best short film and then the next day we had lawyers calling us to give us uh cease and desist orders to remove the film from vimeo and everything and uh it took years to be able to finally release it again or uh yeah at all so um so yeah we're gonna release that this summer and 
and Oliver's story is crazy as hell. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, and he is a, an amazing human being. And, you know, I can't wait to share it with the world. I know when I emailed you originally that I, I said it, we would try and make it more about the people around you and the people in your stories. Who inspires you to do art and who inspires you to do good work? I'll just follow that up with, you have a quote talking about, I want to be a lazy sack of marmot turds. Yeah, I don't know if you remember <laughs> that. But you can't because, you know, Telluride is watching. And, you know, is that still true? It was a while ago. But, you know, <clears throat> if that if that's some help to answer the question, like, who inspires you? Yeah, Telluride was, you know, basically my college. Uh, you know, I moved there when I was 19 and, and uh, worked at the newspaper there for a decade. And uh, that's how I learned to tell a story with with a single image and then I was like a slide projector bitch at mountain film. Like I would sit there and uh, focus the slide projectors for like national geographic photographers. And that's where I saw films that you couldn't see anywhere else. You would see things you would, I shit you not had never seen before in your life or even thought of. It was the first place I saw someone base jump. That's where I, for the first time felt energy build in a room around a story that was told well man, it's, it, it's just fucked with me forever. Like with my job, I strive to build that energy in a room and feel people like, uh, enjoy it together and feel it together. So yeah, Telluride was really special to me. It was a big part of my life, 18 years of my life. And like I, for a long time, I felt like I was making films to, to show them there and make sure they were good, you know, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, but now, you know, now it's evolved. Yeah. I don't know. I, and I, I'm just lucky that anyone wants to pay my mortgage to make these things. It's, it's so lucky. Yeah. Any river films coming out soon? I think I had mentioned, um, taking my ambition down a notch earlier. And uh, so yeah. like, the, the next film I'm doing is kind of just that I'm doing a film in the backyard here. Uh, that's about, um, it's about the history of the Italian immigrants in Pueblo, Colorado, that uh that farm there and uh have kind of created their own strain of green chili and but part of the film is uh how their lives are are completely based around uh the arkansas river the water from the arkansas river that runs through a ditch there and how it is constantly under threat by people selling their water rights downstream to municipalities and uh i think they call it buy and dry but uh, no one wants to see their way of life disappear down there. That's the next film, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to look forward to seeing it. That's all I have. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm uh, I'm super honored. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, are you? <laughs> Same to you, Ben. Same to you for sure. That's our episode. If you'd like to see more of Ben's work, check out feltzomedia.com. The films we talked about in this episode are available for free online, except Eastern Rises, which is available at Vimeo On Demand. Ben's newest film, Learning to Drown, is available on the North Face's Vimeo page. Learning to Drown follows the life and career of professional snowboarder Jess Camara as she unapologetically shatters stereotypes with her own brand of unwavering determination and go-for-broke mentality. 
After the tragic death of Jess's partner at the height of her career, she spirals into a cycle of self-destruction, grief, and despair, compounded by head injuries and mental health issues. The circumstances seem insurmountable. Jess's only way out was within, as she faces her deepest fears. She reminds us that not all wounds are meant to heal. For the rest of Ben's films, check out Feltzel Media's Vimeo page, Yeti.com, and SimsFishing.com. Pending another cease and desist order from the King of Bhutan, A Thousand Casts will be out later this year. Opening music by Charlie Parr. The song is Daniel in the Lion's Den. If you'd like to talk with me about this episode or anything else, you can write me at karensfilm at gmail.com or through the contact page on theriverradius.com. Thank you all for listening to my first episode on The River Radius. A wow-sized thank you goes out to Ben Knight for coming on the River Radius podcast. You can find out more about Ben Knight in today's episode notes. And a big water year-sized thank you goes out to Greg Cairns for joining the River Radius as a contributing host and for bringing such a sweet interview to the podcast. You can find links to Greg's film company in today's episode notes. Thank you to both of our advertising sponsors for this episode, Down River Equipment Company and the Denver and Front Range of Colorado Nissan dealerships. You can find Downriver online at www.downriverequip.com. You can find a direct link to Downriver in today's episode notes. And Nissan is online at www.nissanusa.com. You can find a dealer locator link for Nissan in today's episode notes. Tell them both. The River Radius sent you. All music in today's episode is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Before we close out, Do you have friends getting ready for summer road trips to rivers? Will you help share the river radius? If you can, share this or your favorite episode with a friend. Your support is the best thing we can get. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. We went across the world and caught all the biggest fish bullshit. At one point, she threatened to moon the audience. And my first question was, are any of them going to blow up? With my job, I strive to build that energy in a room. And then the king of Bhutan won't approve the film. That's all. I, I'm, are we done?